And uh, just super excited that you have chosen to uh, worship with us uh, this today, especially if you are a guest. Can I just say welcome? Uh, one of the things we would love for you to do is to take a moment uh, and just fill out a connection card that you'll see in the pew in front of you. Uh, if you grab that, uh, you can also, if you have our church app, you can do it that way as well. But uh, it is a really great way to get connected here at Westgate is to fill out that card. And uh, if you do that this morning, I just ask you to take it out to our guest center in the main entrance and uh, you can exchange it 
it there with one of the hosts that are there. Uh, they'll have a small gift to give you to say thank you for being here. But even more important, they would just love the opportunity to answer any questions you might have about how to get connected uh, here at Westgate, which is really what our heart is, is helping people uh, to get connected into the life of the church and uh, to find their place uh, in relationships to continue growing with God. And so uh, please be sure uh, to do that as well. Regular attenders, we'd love for you to fill out that card as well. It is a great way to keep us up to date on any information changes, address, phone number, email, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, most importantly is if you have prayer requests that you would like to share with the pastoral staff, it is a joy for us to be praying for our congregation each and every week. And so uh, you can write those there and drop those in the offering as it goes by this morning. And so please be sure uh, to do that. There are a lot of things that are going on uh, during uh, during uh, this month and uh, would encourage you to be checking our church app regularly as the place to find all of that information about different things that are happening. Uh, but as we continue our service this morning, we actually have a very special uh, morning where we're going to be dedicating a number of children to the Lord. And so I'm going to invite all of those families to come on up here with Marlena. And uh, as they come, would you uh, please welcome them this morning? One of the things that as we uh, prepare for child dedication, our kids ministry has put together a great class uh, that each of these families uh, come to and have the opportunity to participate in and uh, just to learn more about what child dedication is here at Westgate. And I'll take a moment too, just to let you know, super important for those of you that have young kids, uh, especially or grandparents. Yeah, feel free to come. You guys are making me nervous. Okay, here we go. Uh, we have a class uh, as well that our kids ministry has put together called Kid Faith, and uh, we're going to be having a baptism service that is actually happening a few weeks after Easter, and uh, that Kid Faith class is designed specifically to prepare uh, kids for that, and we invite the kids, but not only the kids, their parents, to participate in that. So that'll be beginning April 2nd uh, and go for three weeks. If you are interested in that, you can find it in our app. You can click on it, register right there, uh, but again, I just I think our kids' ministry is doing such a great job preparing our kids and our families. Uh, and helping our kids to grow in their faith in Jesus. And so we are excited to have so many of you this morning dedicating your children to the Lord. And so I'm going to turn things over to Marlena. Go Awesome. Yeah, we were so excited. Uh, we've got to sit in a class, like uh, Pastor Rob mentioned, called Child Dedication Class. And we say child because we don't just dedicate babies, right? Anybody can join our church. And so we love that some of our kids are older here. And I just wanted, I, my worst fear is dropping this giant jar of marbles. Uh, because that would be sad and funny all at the same time. Um, but in this jar are 936 marbles. And in our class, we talk about how each one of those marbles represents a week in the life of a child from the time they are born until they turn 18 years old. And so I think about my own child who we're down in the 600s and he's only five. Don't do that math. I think it's right. But um, but he's only five, and we've already lost so many marbles. And so one thing we talked about was that each one of these families, they received a large marble as a reminder that in order to make these weeks count, you have to count the weeks. And so we've encouraged them that we are here to partner with them, that we want them to know that the church is not just a place where you can come and, yeah, just drop them off. We want to partner with you. We want to help you disciple your kids, to partner with you and to come alongside you and help give you tools and equip you to do that. Because that's a really big job. And as a church, 
We have a big job to do that, right? We can say that, but we really want to do the job of equipping. And so these marbles are up here as a reminder that time goes really fast. And if you have kids or you know kids that are in your life, they grow up so quickly. So making the time count is really, really important. And so in our class, one thing that we've asked them to do is to really think about not what you want your child. Maybe we say, oh, I really wish they would be a doctor. I really wish they would be this. But not what you want your child to grow up to be, but who you want your child to become. And who is it that you are praying? What are the things or the verses that you are asking God to cultivate and develop in the life of your child? And so they're going to introduce themselves and they're going to share what those things are that they're praying for God to develop in the life of their child. I'm so sorry. I, I did not hear what we were about to do. <laughs> That's real life. Okay, so I don't know. I don't know. Hi. <laughs> I'm Shannon. This is my husband, Nick. And this is our four-year-old Waverly, our five-year-old twins, Reggie and Cassidy, and our almost two-year-old Bentley. And we thought that Joshua 1.9, have I commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. All right, hi everyone, I'm Aaron, this is my beautiful wife, Abby, and this is our son, August, but we just call him Gus. Um, and... Uh, we have three specific things that we're praying for um, over August as he grows um, up to be a man of God. Uh, the first one is just that he'll have a heart to serve, um, just like Jesus was a servant. Um, and the second is also that he'll just have a spirit of truth um, and also a mind to seek after God. Um, and one of the verses that we've chosen to um, just pray over August as he continues to grow is Hosea 12.6. Um, which, which says, so you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Hi, I'm Bridget Beach, and my husband Jim, and we have Olivia and Addie, and um, the Bible verse we chose for Olivia is Mark 15, 14, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these um, and since she was born, we just, she's a reminder of us of what it means to be a child, and we pray that she would be a child of God all her, all her days. And for Addie, um, since I was pregnant with her, God gave me the verse Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And we just pray that um, she would know that that's true about her, and that would change everything about her life. Uh, I am Zachary Kilgore. This is uh, Samantha Kilgore and uh, our son Ezra. Um, some of the uh, traits that we wanted to our son to grow up with and embody are uh, determined, be, be determined, curious, compassionate, generous, and courageous. Um, and just kind of grow up to be a good, happy kid, basically. Uh, when it comes to child dedication, you guys know the child dedication itself, um, when, we, when we practice this in the church, it's not about 
bringing our children uh, to be dedicated so that we can know without a shadow of a doubt that they'll be saved. But child dedication, as we see and we take from Scripture, is really about the commitment that we make as parents to how we're going to raise our children to love and to follow the Lord. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is the instruction that God gave to his people Israel in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Notice that this passage starts with your relationship with God, that you will love God with all that you are. And then he continues and says, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and shall be a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That from the outflow of our relationship with God, we are called to shepherd our children to come to know Christ. And so when we uh, come to this place of child dedication this morning, it's truly a commitment that you are making to say, Say, God, I am giving my child back to you. I know that you created them, that you care for them most, but I am committing myself to continue to grow in my yielding of my heart and life to you that my children won't just hear what I say, but will see the way that I live so that they would also choose to follow you. And so this morning I have just a charge for each of you as you dedicate your children to the Lord. Uh, as I read this, listen carefully, and uh, then you can respond if you're in agreement with saying we will. Believing that your children are a gift from God and that he will hold you accountable for them. Will you commit yourselves to the purpose of dedicating your children to the Lord and to his service today? Will you pray with them and also teach them to pray? Will you instruct them in God's word and be a faithful example of Christ to them? Will you teach your children to read God's word and to lead a life completely dedicated to God through Jesus Christ? And will you do everything within your power to provide for them an environment where they can come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior? If you will commit to these things today, will you please say, we will. Awesome. Church family, it is customary that we ourselves as a church family will make a commitment. So I just invite you to stand uh, with me in this moment as I have this charge for you over these families. As family and friends, and also as a church family, we have a great responsibility in insisting each one of these families here this morning and what they are committing to. Will you as family, friends, and a church family commit to always representing Jesus Christ to their children? Will you commit to praying for them as God prompts you? And if given the opportunity, will you commit to supporting them by teaching their children about Jesus in the hope that they will one day respond and follow Christ with their whole life? If you will commit to these things, would you please say, we will. Awesome. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for each of these families that are here this morning and the heart that they have to truly teach their children about your son, Jesus Christ, that from a very young age that they would come to know you as their personal Lord and Savior. Lord, I first want to pray over each of these parents that you would continue to grow them deeper and their trust and their knowledge of you, but the yielding of their hearts and their lives to you, that as they lead and they guide their children, that they would do so not just from a place of the words that they speak, but from the way that they model for them and the way that they live, what it means to follow Jesus with your whole heart. And so, Lord, I pray that you would provide these parents with everything that they need. And at the same time, my prayer, Lord, for each of these young children is that they would come to know you 
as their personal Lord and Savior from a young age. That, Father, as they continue to grow, that you would develop within each of them, Father, the gifts that you have ordained for them to have through the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would use them mightily for the purposes of your kingdom. I thank you, Lord, so much for each of these families. And we dedicate each of their children to you now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, praying, Lord, that you would be glorified in each of their lives. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, again, would you uh, congratulate each of the families this morning? And uh, as, uh, as you exit... Uh, our Threads of Love ladies have each made a quilt for uh, each of your children. And so if you got four, you get four. It's great. So uh, be sure to uh, grab those. And church family, as they are uh, exiting the stage, would you take a moment to turn and greet someone that you have not said hello to yet this morning? You guys stay standing, excuse me, as we continue in our worship. tries to roll over my bones when darkness comes to steal the joy I own when brokenness and pain is all I know I won't be shaken no I won't be shaken cause my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. Stand in your presence, God, and sing no Stand. 
for giving you a place to worship, freedom to worship. As we sing this next song, just let this song be your prayer. Or think about these words that we sing. Then be your prayer. Absorb them. Soak them in. God is here with us now. Breathe him in.
through even when we don't see it. God, you are there. I pray that the words of that song would be true. That declaration, saying that over and over again, may you be our everything, God. May you be our one desire, the true desire of our heart. May we long for you more than anything else in this world because, God, there's nothing sweeter, nothing sweeter than your mercy and love. No matter what else we try to fill, up, fill that void with, God, we know that it's only you. Only you, God. You never change. We thank you for your unfailing love, your unfailing kindness, your relentless love, God. Your grace washes over us. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for being here with us this morning, in this moment, right now. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that all God's people pray. Amen. It's in your continued act of worship this morning. I just want to encourage you, um, as we take this morning's offering, please take those buckets and just pass them down. If you are a guest, just, just let them pass right by you. thank the worship team with me for leading us today just into uh, into the throne room and uh, giving us the opportunity to uh, sing praises to the Lord. It is good uh, to be with you this morning. Uh, can you believe it? Uh, we, are, we are getting very, very close to Easter, which is uh, kind of mind-blowing. I feel like we just started the year and we're going to find ourselves here about a third of the way through uh, very, very quickly. I can't believe how quick it is going. Uh, but because of that, we're going to be beginning a new series this morning. We just finished our series uh, going through the Ten Commandments entitled Guardrails. And over the next many weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to begin this new series entitled Last Words, taking a look at Jesus' final words uh, from the cross. Uh, and I believe that as we dive into this series together, there is a lot that we are going to learn about his heart and his passion for us. You know, it's been said, and I believe it's, it's fully true, that a person's last words that when they're spoken uh, before they leave this life or this earth usually reveal to us a lot about who they are as an individual, the things that were important to them and really the truths and things that guided uh, their lives. Uh, think about it this way. There are a number of famous people uh, whose last words have been memorialized and they, when, you, when you listen to them, they'll reveal something to you about what was important to them. I think of someone like P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum was most recently in the movies, uh, in, in, uh, displayed in the movies through uh, The Greatest Showman. And uh, when you look at his last words, his last words that he spoke were this, what were today's receipts. I mean, essentially, 
He cared at the, on his deathbed about how much money was coming in. Uh, you might think of someone like Karl Marx, founder of communism, a guy that uh, didn't do a lot of great things in this world. It's said that when he was on his deathbed that uh, his, his, uh, basically the maid came to him and said, hey, uh, you know, tell me what your last words are. I'll write them down and I'll publish them when you die. And he looked at her and said, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough already. So... Um, little bit of an angry soul. Um, Muhammad Ali, boxer, most of us uh, know him uh, fairly well from, uh, uh, from his uh, sporting accomplishments. And his final words were, as his family gathered around him, I'm in no pain. Don't cry for me. I made peace with God. How do I look? <laughs> Folks, I just read what I read. So, uh, yeah, how do I look? He, he was a little concerned, I think, uh, about that. Uh, Joan Crawford, who was an actress years and years ago, uh, who often acted with Clark Gable in old movies, uh, when she was approached at her deathbed and a friend began praying over her, she looked at her and said, don't you dare ask God to help me. And then she died. I uh, don't want to think about what came after that. Okay, next, Joe DiMaggio, baseball player for the Yankees. His final words, I finally get to see Marilyn again, thinking of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who was an artist uh, who uh, had uh, painted the Mona Lisa, his last words, striking, said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. And then, lastly, Harriet Tubman, first African-American to serve in the military during the Civil War, also helped free numerous slaves through the Underground Railroad. Her final words, beautiful words, swing low, sweet chariot. I mean, when you think of someone's last words, everybody has them. We will all one day have our last words that we speak in this life. But what we often see is that they reveal something about who we are and what is most important to us as individuals. And the same can be said and is absolutely true about Jesus and his last words. These statements from the cross that we're going to look at them, each of them is very significant and reveals God's heart for us. Uh, it reveals who Jesus was, what he was about, and what was most important to him. And so as we begin to take a look at his first statement from the cross this morning, I want us, if you have your sermon notes, by the way, please pull them out. You can follow along with me. And if you have your Bibles, take a look with me at Luke. Luke chapter 23, uh, as we'll be beginning there together this morning. But you'll see that uh, Jesus, as he is going to the cross and to his death, is led to a place of what we would call complete and utter humiliation. Uh, our passage, Luke 23, verse 33, reads this way. It says that when they came to the place that is called the skull, it is there that they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, we know that Jesus, uh, one of the things about him is that he, he was crucified. One of the most horrific tortures and deaths that the Roman world could have possibly uh, handed out on a person and on their life. Crucifixion, though, often when we think about it, we think about it in terms of, oh, that would be a really painful, horrible way to die. But it was more than just about being cruel. And I want you to see that this morning. Because the death that Jesus died was, was led this way by the Romans. First, fill-ins. It was a very public trial that Jesus went through that led to a very public death, which was a very public ritual of status degradation. 
In other words, everything that Jesus was walked through by not only the religious leaders, but the Romans themselves from his public trial to his public death was a ritual that was not just about being cruel and torturous. It was certainly about that, but it was about completely degrading the status of an individual in the eyes of the populace. We know that Jesus had experienced incredible popularity amongst the people from all of the healing that he did, the incredible way that he taught like no one had ever heard before. People loved Jesus and they followed him in large throngs. And the religious leaders hated how Jesus was so popular. In their own eyes, they were losing their own influence over the people. And so they saw Jesus as a threat. And we read throughout scripture that they were constantly looking for a way to do away with Jesus. They couldn't stand him. And so what did they do? They drum up false charges against him. And then they get Rome involved. And once they get Rome involved, this public trial leading to public death that was a means to completely degrade a person's status began. Jesus' trial was incredibly public. He would be flogged by the Romans. Uh, Flogging was being whipped with a cat of nine tails so much that you would be barely, your body, you would be barely recognizable when people would look at you. It was a horrific torture that Jesus faced. But not only was he flogged and not only did he face this horrific torture, uh, but also he went and in his public trial with Pontius Pilate, had crowds of people that had been gathered together, literally pleading and begging for Rome to to crucify him, that he would be taken outside of the city, hung on a tree, and killed in one of the most horrific ways, and it was seen literally as a sport. And so they're doing that, and at the same time, you remember that these crowds, as they're chanting for Jesus to be crucified, are pleading with Pilate, Pilate, would you release to us a man by the name of Barabbas? Barabbas was a known, hardened criminal. This guy had done bad things. Jesus just went around healing people, and here he is. In front of the entire populace here in Jerusalem, his status is becoming lower and lower and lower, and his humiliation is rising and rising. This was the purpose of this type of trial and this type of death. It was very public. And so Jesus' status and credibility in the eyes of the public begins to crumble. The purpose and the goal was the complete humiliation of an individual. If there were throngs of followers, the idea was that it would humiliate them to such a point that it would destroy their own movement. As well, it was meant to discourage other people within Rome from ever thinking about the possibility of trying to overthrow or challenge the Roman government. And yet, as we see, not only was it serving the purpose of completely degrading the status of an individual, bringing them completely low into a place of humility, but it was also a form of entertainment for the masses. Crucifixion served as entertainment. Now, when we think of entertainment, what do we think of? We think of sporting events, right? We think of the Toledo women's basketball team winning 16 in a row and a championship yesterday. Anybody watch that yesterday? Watch some college basketball, the men not faring so well. We might go to a walleye game who have also won 16 games in a row. They've gotten themselves into playoffs. We love going to sporting events as our form of entertainment. Maybe we might go to the movies. If we want to get really like, you know, into the nitty gritty stuff, we might go see a UFC fight. Well, when you think about entertainment in our own culture today, honestly, there are some comparisons to Roman culture, but we can't even come close to the brutality that they found entertaining. 
Certainly, they were known for the Olympic Games. They were known for chariot races. They were known for people going to the theater as a form of entertainment. But one of their greatest forms of entertainment was public executions. We understand that one of the things that they would do is gather large crowds of people in the Colosseum as they would send gladiators out into the middle of the Colosseum to fight each other to the death. And you know, a lot of times this has been glamorized in the movies, but many times these gladiators were nothing more than, than criminals. They were people that were slaves, people who they thought had no value in life, and they would send them out in order to fight each other and kill each other. And even if you won, you only won for a little while because the next person would enter with their own weapon and you would keep fighting until you were killed. This is how they found pleasure and entertainment. We know that the other things that they did is they would take criminals and they would strip them naked and push them out into the middle of the Colosseum as crowds would roar and they would release wild animals to chase them down and to kill them. This was their entertainment. There would be beheadings, public burnings where they would would, uh, dress people in beautiful clothing and have them dance around only to light them on fire and have them burn to death. I mean, it was horrible. And crucifixion was truly the very pinnacle of this brutality. Many people would be crucified in the Colosseums as, as onlookers watched and cheered, but also it was taken to very public places alongside roads on top of hills where large gatherings of people could come and watch the spectacle of a person being treated so brutally. It was Josephus who said these words. He said, every day Roman soldiers caught 500 Jews or more And the soldiers, driven by their hatred of the Jews, would nail them to crosses. And they nailed them in many different positions to entertain themselves and the masses. They would literally contort their bodies and put them in weird positions to nail them there for a form of entertainment and also to horrify the Jews. You know, what's interesting as we read this is once Jesus has been convicted, we read in this passage in Luke 23, that he is forced to now carry his cross, having being flogged and beaten to a point of being unrecognizable to a place that the passage calls Golgotha or the place of the skull. You'll see this picture on the screen uh, behind me. Uh, I took this picture a number of years ago when I was in Israel as one of the sites that they say could be the place where Jesus was crucified. And the reason that they go to it is because of how the outcropping of rocks on this hill looks like a skull. And they believe this is why they would have brought him to this place, a hill where he could have been crucified on top of it with a road that would pass down below and people could come and use this as a form of entertainment, a spectacle for them to watch. It was likely on the side of a road or a hilltop where they could gather. And the person being crucified, like Jesus, would be stripped naked in most cases, completely bare, having nothing, nailed to a cross and left to die one of the most excruciatingly cruel, evil, and painful deaths that you could imagine. But the purpose of this was to kill them, but also it was a very graphic and public, uh, a very public demonstration of the loss of honor. You see, the society that they lived in was all about honor and shame. And as I mentioned, that crucifixion wasn't just about an evil way to hurt someone. It was about bringing them so low in the eyes of the public that no one would dare to even think about following them. And here's what's crazy When you think about what Jesus has gone through, not just the horrific pain and the torture, but the complete humiliation, 
There is an irony in this moment. As Jesus hangs on this cross, that the sinless creator of the world would now die at the very hands of his creation between two criminals. That Jesus himself, the one who gave life and breath to the individuals that were scoffing and mocking him and nailing him to a tree. He was being put to death at their hands. And the sinless creator of the world who had done no wrong is hanging a criminal's death between two criminals. And that, I believe, is what makes this passage so astounding. Because Jesus, when he speaks his first words from the cross blows our minds away. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, we have Jesus' first words with everything he has experienced, and he says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you feel that for a minute? Father, forgive them. It was a captivating countercultural statement that Jesus would made. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes for just a minute. You're an innocent person. You've done nothing wrong. People have made up lies about you. And they've made up lies so bad. Roman government is going to take you and nail you to a tree. They're going to flog you. They're going to not only strip the life out of you, but they're going to take everything they possibly can to bring you to nothingness and to complete ruin. That is exactly what they did. They took Jesus to a place of death that was reserved for the worst criminals in the world. The entire goal being your complete humiliation and evil torture and ultimately death. And would the first words out of your mouth be, forgive them? Father, forgive them? Are you kidding me? We struggle to forgive people that have, have done far less against us. If somebody looks at us wrong, we don't want to forgive them. I'm still struggling to forgive the person who got me sick this past week, let alone like this, right? How in the world does Jesus bring himself to forgive his executioners his accusers. For Jesus to do this as he utters these words from the cross would have been totally countercultural. Romans had a very strong sense of justice. If, if somebody was wronged or something was done wrong, they would mete out retribution. But their concept of grace and forgiveness was completely non-existent in that culture. Angry Greek gods did not forgive people. What they did is they sought retribution. They found a way to bring people to ruin. And this is how the population of Rome thought. And so as Jesus hangs on this cross, having been tortured brutally, for him to speak out and say these words was against everything in that culture. And it's against everything in our culture today as well. Because in our own culture, we emphasize justice in such a way that for a victim to forgive their offender is becoming almost unheard of. If you look at someone wrong, if you say the wrong thing, even if it's an accident, you will be canceled, you will be punished, we will seek to shame people, humiliate them, rather than to offer forgiveness. And yet, Jesus uses some of his last words in his last moments of life in the midst of this torture to forgive. And not just to forgive, 
But then he also says, for they know not what they do. And the question that goes through my mind is, but how? How do they not know what they're doing? The religious leaders have been planning for an incredibly long time to find a way to do away with Jesus. He's a threat to them, a threat to their popularity, their influence. And so what do they want? They want Jesus gone. They know exactly what they're doing. They've been scheming and planning. When Judas finally came to them and offered the opportunity, they took it without even batting an eye. You think of Rome, and now Rome has gotten involved, and Rome looks at it and goes, well, maybe he is a threat, and so they find a way to, I mean, they have been practicing crucifixion for a long time. They know exactly what they're doing. They're not just trying to inflict pain on a man, but bring him to complete humiliation and disband anybody that would try to follow him. They know what they are doing, and yet, both groups What they believed is that they were removing someone who sought their earthly power and to take it from them. But here's what they missed and why Jesus speaks these words, for they know not what they do. It's because Jesus wasn't seeking to set up an earthly kingdom. He wasn't dying because of them. He was dying for them. He didn't want to remove the religious leaders and their power or influence He wanted to redeem their lives. He didn't want to overthrow Rome. He wanted Rome and all of its citizens to know the extent of his love for them. And so he allowed himself to be crucified on a tree for them. And he speaks these words, Father, forgive them, because they can't even begin to understand my purpose. What's crazy is that even as Jesus speaks these words, no doubt the people that are standing there watching, hearing every word that Jesus says, we read that they incessantly continue to show absolutely no regard for Jesus. In Luke 23, beginning at the second part of verse 34, it says that they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. There was also an inscription that hung over his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. You see, as Jesus offers forgiveness, the people that are there, they don't even bat an eye at it. It probably sounded really funny and really weird. They probably got a really good laugh out of it as they continued to sin against him. That even his moment of death, here's Jesus with the soldiers at his feet casting lots to divide his garments. Casting lots. You know what casting lots is, right? It's like the idea of taking a whole bunch of straws and cutting one shorter and holding them in your hand so they all look the same. And every individual taking one. And whoever gets the shorter one is the person that has been chosen or that wins, right? This is a picture of what they were doing, casting lots, gambling over Jesus' clothes. Uh, Back in Roman times, they would do something like that with sticks. They would do that with a black or a white rock, you know, and seeing which one you got. They might even throw dice. But the point of it was to fight over Jesus' earthly, last earthly belongings as he hung on a tree and he died. Not only did they do this, but it says that the religious leaders scoffed at him. 
Literally, they say to him, he saved others, let him save himself. No doubt picturing Jesus walking around, healing the masses, doing incredible things, raising people from the dead. And now as he hangs on this tree saying, look, if you're so great, if you're so powerful, then pull yourself down off of that tree. What do they want to do? Make sure that the populace understands they're the ones to follow because he's nothing but a sham who truly has no power. It says that the soldiers mock him. They come up and they offer him a drink of sour wine, likely mixed with vinegar. In his moments of agony and death, they continue to do nothing but belittle him. Why in the world? I mean, the religious leaders, the soldiers, they have gotten what they wanted. He is going to die on this tree as every other person that had been crucified did. Why could they not just leave and let it be done? But they continue, even after Jesus says, I forgive you, to mock him incessantly to heap on the humiliation, even so much so that they would then belittle his very kingship by putting a sign above his head that says, here is the king of the Jews. This is the one who will save you from Rome. But I don't want you to lose the power of this moment, of what's actually happening. As Jesus speaks these words of forgiveness, Don't let the power of this moment be lost on you that Jesus forgave them even though they would continue to sin against him. In our minds, it would be completely justified to not forgive. That's what we would do. It would be completely justified if Jesus would simply condemn them and take hold of the situation. Why? Because when someone hurts us, when we've experienced the pain of betrayal by a friend, by a family member, somebody that we believe that we could trust, that we have been in an intimate relationship with, and they have hurt us, even as Christians who seem to know better, we know that God asks us to forgive. The question that we will often ask, even of God in these moments, is, well, how many times do I have to forgive? What is the limit? When is it God? When is enough enough? Why must I forgive? And the truth is, is because all of us in our sinful nature have a limit of the grace that we're willing to hand to other people. And yet what Jesus does in his death and even in his life teaches us this truth, that his followers, his followers, are identified by forgiving other people in the same way that Jesus has forgiven them. I'll say that again. He wants us to understand, and he modeled with his life that followers of Jesus are identified by forgiving others in the same way that Jesus has forgiven them. You are identified by forgiving others in the way that Jesus has forgiven you. Jesus not only modeled this perfectly with his life, but if we look back at one of his interactions with his disciples, we will see that not only did he model it, he taught it regularly to his disciples. If you have your Bibles, I want you to flip with me quickly to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. He has been teaching them about how they show mercy and grace. And Matthew 18 is a passage that most of us are familiar with. 
uh, in the church because it reminds us of the rules that have been put in place about how you approach someone who has wronged you, right? It's literally right before what we're going to read where Jesus says, hey, if your brother has wronged you, go to him directly, go to him first, have a conversation with him. Don't go to other people, do it there. And if he doesn't respond, then go get the elders of the church and continue, right? That's what we are most familiar with. And it's on the heels of this teaching as Jesus is trying to help us to understand what it means to be his follower and a part of the kingdom of heaven, that he then has this interaction with Peter. Matthew 18, verse 21. It says that Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times times. Now, this is an intriguing passage. Peter uh, seems to have a specific situation in his mind. Maybe a brother has offended him, and he's thinking to himself, how many times do I need to forgive him? Now, Peter also understands as he asks this question that Jesus is very different than the religious leaders of that day. Jesus is different in the sense that he is far more gracious, far more compassionate, and far more forgiving. And so Jesus looks at him and says, hey, how about seven times? And as we hear Peter say this, we think to ourselves, man, Peter seems like a pretty gracious dude. Like he's really learning from Jesus. But what we might miss is I actually believe when we read this passage, it's not necessarily a sense of humility that we see from Peter, but maybe even a sense of self-righteousness. Here's why. Because what the religious leaders of that day actually taught was you only had to forgive someone three times. That's it. It came from the book of Amos. Amos chapter 1 in the Old Testament, they took a passage where it said that God told uh, the people of Israel through the prophets that they would only have to forgive, that they only needed to forgive their enemies three times. And so they made it a blanket rule and a blanket statement for all of life. Famous rabbis wrote on this and they said, if someone sins against you, forgive them once. If they sin against you a second time, forgive them twice. If they do it a third time, forgive them a third time. If they do it a fourth time, no forgiveness. So for Peter here having this conversation with Jesus, what he's actually doing is going like, hey, look, the religious leaders say three. I've kind of picked up on how gracious you are. How does seven sound to you, right? I mean, Peter's got to be feeling pretty good about this answer as he, as he spews it out of his mouth. Seems pretty, pretty humble, pretty, pretty smart. But here's the problem. Peter doesn't realize that he's thinking just like the religious leaders, exactly like them, actually. Because he's thinking in the terms of the limited terms of the law as opposed to the unlimited terms of grace. And so what Jesus does is corrects him and responds and says, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, some versions will say 77. Some will say 70 times seven. And the point is this. It doesn't matter if it was 77 or 490. Jesus' point is clear. You are to forgive at all times. And he tells a parable to help drive this point home, a parable that I think Peter probably would have understood to some degree after Jesus told it, but to an even greater degree after Jesus died and rose again. The parable, Jesus continues here in Matthew 18, and he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master uh, ordered him to be sold with his wife, his children, and all that he had, and for payment to be made. And so the servant falls on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, 
the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. It's an interesting parable that Jesus tells. He speaks about a king who has servants who owe a debt and that he is coming to collect on these debts. And what's interesting is that some people will say, well, you know, maybe Jesus is just talking about an average king or master with some servants. But scholars really believe what Jesus was talking about because of the incredible amount of debt that was owed was that this individual that Jesus is referencing in the story was likely a tax farmer, someone who would go out and collect taxes from the entire region uh, and that would have to give them to the king. And the reason they believe this is because the sum is 10,000 talents, it says that this person owes. Now, it's important to know that a tax talent was not like a coin. It was a unit of measurement. And the number 10,000 was the largest numerical term in the Greek language at that time. The whole point of the 10,000, idea of 10,000 talents was that this this debt that was owed was completely unpayable. It was so enormous. It was so large. There is no way that this man could ever repay this debt. Here's how we know that. If you were to take all of the tax revenue for one year, and you'll see this picture on the screen, a map, you'll see if you were to take all of the tax revenue from top to bottom on the left side of uh, the, the Red Sea, the Jordan River, and the Sea of Galilee, from Idumea to Samaria to um, uh, all the way up to Galilee, uh, and also in Judea, all of the taxes in one year would be 900 talents. In other words... What is it that that Jesus is saying? This man in this parable owed 11 years worth of taxes from that entire region. There was no way that he could ever possibly repay it. It was a debt so big that he was going to be in jail the rest of his life. And what does it say that the servant does? That he cries out and he pleads for mercy. He says, there's no possible way I'm going to die under this debt. I need someone to show me grace and mercy. And very quickly, the passage tells us that the master looks on him and says that he has pity for him. Now, when we think of pity, it's like, oh, we feel bad for somebody in their horrible estate. But really, it should be translated compassion. That the master has compassion as he sees the position out of love in his heart for his servant. He forgives the entire debt. Can you imagine the joy that would overcome that servant? Have you ever been forgiven of something that you did against someone? The feeling of joy that overwhelms you when that grace is given and you have hurt or wronged another person. The feeling of freedom from the weight of that guilt that you bear. The joy that you feel. Can you imagine what it would be like for this young man who has this incredible debt taken off of him? Maybe you do really understand. Because as we see, what Jesus is doing is painting a very clear picture for us of the gospel. He's painting a picture of our position before God. You see, the king in this passage is God. And the servant with the unpayable debt is us. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We owe a debt to God because of our sin. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of that sin is death. In other words, that that debt is so huge and so unpayable that it requires that our life, our very life, would be given because of it. And yet the Bible continues in John 3.16 to tell us that God so loved the world. Read his compassion over you. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved. You are the one that holds that debt that cannot be repaid. Your life, because of your sin, has been on a destiny of separation from God and of death, not just death in this life, but eternal death and separation from him. And God in his love and his mercy sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could be reconciled to God, that your debt could be completely wiped away. Would you not think that that would change and transform our lives with that beautiful truth? Would you not think that the joy that would overwhelm us would bring us to a place where we would respond with nothing but the greatest praise to God? You see, I believe that as we read this parable and as Jesus speaks with Peter, that there are two responses that must come from it. And the first one is this. It's repentance. The first response must be Repentance coming to a place of recognizing the depth of our sin and seeing just how desperately we are in need of God, but recognizing the incredible grace that he has poured out on us. And our response is to come to him and say, Father, forgive me for what I have done, literally as the servant does to cry out and to ask for mercy. And the Bible tells us that God has given us his mercy in his son, Jesus Christ. And I would simply ask you this question this morning. What debt are you carrying today that the Lord wants to release you from? I know many Christians that continue to walk through this life carrying the debt of their sin and the weight and the guilt burdened by it. And I want you to hear this morning that God desires to free you from that debt. There may be some people that are here today that have never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. And as you begin to realize the situation you find yourself in, separated from God because of sin, that he comes to you and he offers you his grace and his mercy because his son died for you. And you can have that debt erased as well. The first response that it requires is our repentance to say, God, I need you, and to cry out and to ask for his grace. But there's a second piece to it as well that is equally as important. And that second response is unconditional forgiveness of others. Jesus doesn't stop the parable there. In Matthew chapter 18, he continues and says these words. When that same servant went out who had been forgiven that unpayable debt, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then their master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave all of that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. 
Jesus continues, he says that this servant goes out and he finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a debt of 100 denarii. 100 denarii would have been 100 days wages for a common day laborer in that day. It was still a pretty big debt. It was real and it was significant, just like the debts at times that people have with us. When people hurt us, when they bring us to a place of betrayal and we feel that pain, those debts are real they hurt. And it says that when this man comes to collect the debt, that his servant falls, or his fellow servant falls down on his knees exactly in the same way that he did before his master. And he pleads for mercy. What does the servant do? He so quickly forgets the grace that he's been shown and has him thrown in jail where he will lose everything. So the fellow servants that see this happening run and tell the other servant's master who then comes and gives him the scolding of his life and tells him, because you will not forgive in the way that I forgave you, you shall be thrown in jail and lose everything until you repay that debt. Now, some people, when they hear this part of the passage, they think to themselves, does this mean I can lose my salvation? I don't believe that there is this parallel that is intended within the parable. But what it does tell you is something very clear about what Jesus believes true followers of Jesus whose hearts and lives have been transformed by his mercy and grace extend that mercy and grace to others in the way that he did to us. I want to ask you this question this morning. What debt have you been holding on to against someone else that God wants you to forgive and let go? that you would also be a perfect reflection of his son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we read these words this morning, we recognize the incredible gift that you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us this example that as you hung on the cross, having been tortured and facing complete humiliation in the world, that the first thing that you would say is, Father, forgive them. It teaches us so much about you and the way that you love us and the way that you are for us even though we have been against you. And Father, it teaches us about the depth of your love and your grace and your mercy and the way that you gave your life so that we could be restored in relationship with your Father. God, I pray that you would sink that truth deeply into our hearts today, that our hearts would be transformed by the incredible grace that has been shown to us through Jesus and his death on the cross. But I pray that we would be so overwhelmed, Father, as we yield our hearts and our lives to you, that it would cause us also then to go out and to be able to forgive others in the exact same way. Father, we confess to you that it's hard But as we read your word, we know that you understand. And yet you have given us the perfect example of how to forgive in those moments so that other people can come to know you. Your grace is so countercultural, God, to our world. Would you help us to live in that grace, sharing it with others, that they would also know you. 
We're going to come to a time as we close our service of communion together. And if you have your elements, I'd encourage you to pull those out. If you don't, the ushers will be coming down the aisles um, and offer them to you. You can just slip up your hand and they'll bring you uh, the communion elements. But as we go into this time, I want to just take a few moments for us to reflect on those two questions that I shared with you this morning. The first one being, what debt are you holding on to that God wants to forgive you of today? Is there something, is there some sin in your own heart that you need to confess and to get your heart right with the Lord? Because the truth is, is that Jesus went to the cross because he loves you so much, he wants to give you the freedom from that sin. And he offers you his grace and forgiveness. So what is that debt? But secondly, what is the debt that you're holding against someone else and you're having a hard time of letting it go? As we come to this time of just a few moments of silence and prayer, I would ask that you would remember the grace of God that has been shown to you, but that you would pray and ask that God would give you the ability to turn around and show that same grace to others. So let's take just a few moments together of silent prayer, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Apostle Paul gave instructions to the church on taking the Lord's Supper together. He said these words. He said, I receive from the Lord what I deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. The night that one of his closest followers who was intimately involved in his life, who had unfettered access to Jesus, on the night when that friend betrayed him that would ultimately lead to his horrific and humiliating death. It's on that night that Jesus wanted his disciples and all who would follow him throughout history to understand that Jesus came so that people just like Judas could experience his grace and forgiveness. It was on that night that he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together and remember Christ's sacrifice for our sin. Paul continues and says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Do you catch that last part? That not only does this represent Jesus' blood that was poured out to cover over our sin and to take away our sin, But it's also the way that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. 
a reminder that Christ has called us to go out into this world and to share his grace with the world so that they would know him. But catch this, not just with your words, but your actions, that we would forgive and that people would see who Jesus is, not because of what we say, but by how we live the way that he lived. And so let's proclaim that together and take the juice. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the way that you have shown us the depth of your love, the way that you have reminded us, Father, through the pages of Scripture of how you have completely forgiven us and shown us such incredible grace that we have sinned against you. And Father, I thank you that you have modeled for us on the cross the way of forgiving other people in the way that you have forgiven us. Lord, I pray that this morning as we have read your word that you would be transforming our hearts. I know and I believe, Holy Spirit, that you have been moving in us, that you have been reminding us of relationships or situations where we are struggling to forgive other people. That you are reminding us, Father, as even as we struggle with our own sin and guilt and shame from that, that you desire to forgive us in all of these things. You are reminding us of the work that you desire to do in us, but also through us. And so, Lord, we open up our hearts to you today, and we ask that you would do that work. Allow us, Father, to come to a place of humility where we ask you for forgiveness, but also, Father, we pray that you would enable us to forgive others in the same way, Lord, that you have forgiven us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we close our service this morning, I simply want to close with these words spoken by the Apostle Paul, verses of hope to remind us of not only the incredible work that God has done in our lives, but that which he calls us to. It says this, it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. You have been saved by the very grace of God. And he has prepared and paved the way for you to share that grace with a world that is desperately in need of him. And so as you go from here today, may you go in the joy that comes from Jesus knowing what he has done to, re to, to redeem your heart and your life, to wipe away the debt that you owed to him. And may you in the way that you live this week and show to others, extend that same love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness to them that they would also know the one true God. 
Church family, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. If there are things that you need prayer for, I'd encourage you to come to the front at the close of the service. Our prayer team would love the opportunity to pray with you. But as you go, go this week and be a light to Jesus Christ to all you come in contact with. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.